So every night when I'm lying in bed obsessing, <laughs> I'm thinking about the fact that we get confirmation every day that the emancipator needs to exist because we need this context. We need this historical through line. There is nothing new under the sun, but we really need to like, you know, step back from the surface kind of news coverage and provide people an accessible, digestible way to understand the deeper issues that, that, um, that we face every day. So this is just an opportunity for me. It's like throwing down the gauntlet. What else you got? <laughs> Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. In 1820, The Emancipator became the first newspaper in the country devoted exclusively to the cause of abolishing slavery. It was published in Tennessee, a slave state. Other abolitionist newspapers followed, such as The Liberator, published by famous Boston abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, and The North Star, the anti-slavery newspaper founded and edited by abolitionist leader and journalist Frederick Douglass. Today, The Emancipator rises again. This modern version is a collaboration with the Boston Globe's opinion team and Boston University's Center for Anti-Racist Research. This digital publication was launched last month on the website of the Boston Globe. I spoke with Amber Payne and Deborah Douglas, both veteran journalists and co-editors-in-chief of The Emancipator. I began by asking Deborah Douglas what it means to be an abolitionist newspaper in the 21st century. Well, we're taking a page from the original Emancipator, founded in 1820 in Jonesboro, Tennessee. And the founder and publisher, Elihu Embry, was focused on calling for the end of Black enslavement immediately. He was radical for his time. And so we're pulling that historic through line. We're informed by the original emancipator by calling for the end of racial injustice. Events of 2020 led us to this point. Amber, um, uh, since you've been working at the Globe as a reporter um, uh, among your very the various journalism things that you've done, um, what's been missing from the Globe and from other mainstream news organizations in their reporting uh, on race and on other issues? Yeah, well, I can speak in the context of um, you know my background. I started my career as a broadcast uh, journalist producer, and I was always I became frustrated that I had maybe a minute 30, a minute 50 to tell a complex story about black unemployment or the criminal justice system, a ruling. And I, I, it, it just always resonated with me that there was a whole population, for example, take black unemployment stories. Um, it was very by the numbers and there's a whole group of people who are not even included in those numbers. And what's their story and why are they not um, counted here um, in terms of the resources, the benefits they need, the struggles, the issues that they have. So that just kind of carried me through my career thinking about, you know, not having the time maybe, or just the ability to infuse that historical context that might be needed, um, a frame of reference, a through line. We like to talk about through lines and the importance of um, being able to look at an issue over time and really decipher 
why, why are things the way they are? You know, why are there medical disparities? I think that kind of flashing forward to 2020, when we were all experiencing the pandemic, we were all very cognizant and very aware about these racial disparities. Now, if you have been covering um, the Black community like Deborah and myself for some time, this was not a new phenomenon, but it did feel like finally the mainstream media, if you will, was paying more attention to it. And that's because it was in their, in your face. You know, it's been frustrating in my career to know that it's going to take a big protest. It's going to take a police killing and hundreds of people coming out for us to cover that story, for the, the, the media to feel like there's an audience for it, there's a need. Um, why is this happening? So I think, you know, those kind of moments in my career, thinking about how the media has covered race and racism and just the hesitancy to talk about racism and talk about what it means to be racist and what is white supremacy and how has racism been codified in some pieces of American law and society. I'm thinking about race covenants and redlining and just the very literal um, breakdown of excluding a community based on their race. These things have repercussions over time. So I think that's part of what Deborah and I really hope to bring about with the Emancipator is showing the through line and the connection as to why, you know, something like redlining, how that impacts neighborhoods now and segregation. And we wonder why we see segregated neighborhoods. We wonder why some communities have and some have not. And, and we really need to look at history and context for that in our journalism. I wonder, uh, Amber, if there's a story from your own career as a journalist that crystallizes the frustration you felt at not being able to go to that next level to tell a story about race and racial justice. Oh, so many moments. But, you know, I am thinking about um, I was overseeing a platform uh, at NBC Digital called NBC Black, and we had been covering, um, you know, the run up to the 2016 campaign and uh, the racism and racist incidents and things that were said on the campaign trail, and we were things were coming to to a head, and it was it was Charlottesville that I was really pushing my senior editors on that you know, there's something that's gonna be happening in Charlottesville. We wanna send, I wanna send my reporter, I wanna send a camera crew. You know, we're, we're, we wanna be there. We've already done a story about um, some of the uh, work at Monticello and the re resolutions about um, slavery and the, and the enslaved. And we wanna do a follow-up and we're hearing about this rally that's gonna be taking place and we wanna be there. And the, 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 the answer was, uh, the local station, the wires will cover it. You guys can of course cover what they cover. And just that frustration of, of maybe not being trusted as, as the one who has an instinct and a finger on the pulse about um, just something that is very significant and that, that is about to blow up, a powder keg. Um, that's just something that sticks out at me. And I, and I think about myself, I think about um, just being a, a younger manager and, and, and the need for us to speak up and push back and how that has become something that I've that I've learned over time to really fight for something and raise your hand and say no, I, you need to listen. This is important. Um, Deborah, uh, 
could you talk about this collaboration between the Boston Globe and the Center for Anti-Racist Research at Boston University? How does BU's work inform the work of the Globe and vice versa? This is a very unusual collaboration. Journalists are usually extremely protective uh, of only staying within a journalist space. So tell me about this. Well, yeah, journalists can be really protective, but the fact remains that there is an expertise gap in news coverage and in the public conversation, especially when you look at underrepresented expert voices. There, um, There's a need to hear uh, more from them also. We also know that commentary is among the most shared pieces of content on, um, on online sites. And so we're just marrying the, the best of everything um, by bringing these two institutions together. Uh, they're both venerable institutions, powerful institutions. And so, um, but we're bound together by, um, by journalism, the best of journalism. Uh, there are things that Amber and I um, will that we're doing that will be informed by journalistic orthodoxy, but we're going to break form where it's necessary. And so that means, you know, following Amber's uh, point about the people that we serve and the communities that we center, we'll make sure that we go back and recenter the people who don't get centered in narratives. We are following solutions journalism practices. And so that means that we will be uh, embracing what we call asset framing. It's a term that we got from Treby and Shorters. Um, asset framing is defining people by their aspirations, who they hope to be when they get up to purpose themselves to be better today than they were the day before. Um, that's people and communities. The opposite of that is actually the traditional legacy journalism approach, which is to deficit frame certain communities and certain individuals, defining people by a single story. And so you hear that story or that data point replicated so often that you believe that's all there is to know about them. And we want to uh, center all the missing voices, all the underamplified voices, and tell the story of the fullness of who, who they are and show them being agents of their own salvation. Give me an example of just the language of asset framing versus deficit framing. Yeah. Okay. So, for example, um, there's, there's a national um, news site that I've follow for many, many years. And they do um, what they have done in the past, a, a weekend roundup. And they always focus on uh, Chicago, keeping track of the violence in Chicago in this Monday morning wrap up. <laughs> and when I, when I would like read a the wrap sports up, score. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I'm from Chicago. So that's my interest in following the Chicago story. And so they would they would invariably mention the South side, violence ensued on the South side, on the South side. Well, you know what? The South side is a geographic direction. <laughs> it's not just one place. It's a geographic direction made up of communities, made up of neighborhoods, made up of blocks, made up of families, okay? And so when you said that this thing happened on the South side, what you're really signifying is something negative, pejorative, about the, the demography of that particular uh, geographic direction. Who lives there? Well, the South Side is, it, it, it's mostly black. And so by but the lack of specificity about where th this violence occurred and the circumstances and the context of that community, that is 
failure to, to look at those factors is what you would call deficit framing. Just mm. saying Southside really is a dog whistle. It's not information. Right. Um, Amber, what is the difference between reporting on racism and anti-racist journalism? Um, well, I think about reporting um, on racism and race. I, I think about reporting the facts, getting the story down. And I suppose if I'm thinking about anti-racist journalism, it would be uh, part of what Deborah was speaking to with centering the right voices in a story, um, centering those that are most impacted and empowering them to tell their story. So that's one aspect of it. And I also am thinking about the idea of bringing history and context. I think we keep hitting on that, that so much um, oftentimes journalism is, is just devoid of that context um, that rounds it out. We're taking a very close look at the, 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 the background, um, the racial background, the ethnic, the, the gender balance in the, the, the people that we're, we're going to not only include in our stories, but the ones that will be um, writing or producing or, or taking photographs for our stories. So there is um, more of a holistic approach there. And I think, you know, when you think about Dr. Ibram Kendi, how to be anti-racist and his, his work and his book, and he is known for saying that it's not the people, it's the policies. So having that focus and that lens on the policy, on the why, on the how, and um, deconstructing that, dismantling it. Uh, and our goal is to then talk about the solutions. How do you rebuild a system equitably? So those were, will all be aspects of, of what we hope to be building in an anti-racist newsroom. You mentioned I earlier. Have, can I add something, David? Oh, sure. I just want to add that um, as part of that, you know, there, there, there is an orthodoxy to this approach and it's informed by existing approaches like the Maynard Institute's fault lines, which is um, having journalists uh, identify the intersections of their own identities so they can understand the intersections of the identities that they're covering um, on any given day. And so what happens with traditional journalism is that we fall for what I call the fallacy of objectivity. And um, there is objective truth as in science, but the idea that, that we can be these pure human beings who don't bring our own experiences and biases into our narratives and that we don't calibrate for that is actually false. So fault lines is a really important part of this. And I would just wanna add to the context and the voices, um, proportionality of those voices. Uh, Deborah, what parts of your identity and experience have you feel that you've had to hold back in your career that you now feel more able to express in the work you're doing now? I, you know, I talk to so many uh, Black women journalists all the time. You, you know, first of all, the intersection is being Black and being a woman, and depending on the the environment or the country I'm in, being uh, being an American. And in everything that entails, um, I felt like I've had to dial down my enthusiasm to cover a story that that comes through the black experience, or that I would have to spend days and weeks figuring out how to set up the pitch so that it could be heard, or uh, pacing up, pacing out my follow-ups, 
to um, to make sure that my um, editors didn't feel like I lacked objectivity in my job and that I couldn't serve the entire community that we served. And, um, you know, there was one piece that I that I wrote while I was still the number two um, editor in the features department at the Chicago Sun-Times, but I was writing columns on the side and I pitched a, I pitched a column and it used a controversial word. And so I gave it to the executive editor to review and um, I, I did check-ins. He's like, okay, Deb, just give me time, give me time, give me time. So, you know, I like waited a couple of weeks and I went back. I'm like, so have you made a decision yet? He was like, yeah, I mean, I showed another black person and they think that we shouldn't run it. So he wasn't even confident in his own ability to serve a particular uh, uh, community, you know, a large community <laughs> that we serve to make his own decision. Right, but, well, you, you got to tell us what the controversial word was, because now you're free to say it. Oh, well. I'm not free to say it, but it was, I did use the N-word in the piece, but it was sort of, um, it was an excavation on how people use the N-word. And it was from a position of a personal responsibility and vulnerability that I showed how I have used the word and other people have been implicated in using the word. So as opposed to being someone who says, oh, I'm too good for that. I'm like, no, I'm not good for that at all. I, I said it and this is why. And then, you know, and I took it through, you know, and it was pegged to the news. And so, um, so in that moment, I was like, I know what I wrote is powerful and I know that it will connect. And I know that the audience would respond to someone being honest and not sanctimonious about it. And, but I had to choose, do I push or do I hold back? So I decided to hold back because I had to believe that if I wrote something that I thought was powerful, then it's just a matter of timing that it would see the light of day. And I waited a year and something happened again. And now it's on a bigger stage. And, um, and I pitched the idea again and I shaped it up for the new information. They said yes, and it was the most popular column on the newspaper's website for three weeks in a row. And I went on CNN twice in one day to talk about it. The second time I got fancy about it and asked to send a car. What do you learn from that experience? Um, I mean, that, that just found, sounds like a transformative experience really to you. To stand in your power, um, to Amber's point, to to speak up for yourself, to remember um, who you are and whose you are, and to believe that that deserves space and centering also. Amber, I wonder if you could uh, talk about the transformation that occurred in the newsroom as you experienced it after the George Floyd murder. What did that do to journalism? Well, it's funny. Um, just before uh, that incident, um, you know, I was getting some. I was I was kind of looking for my another job and and looking around, and then and there were some jobs that had had been posted um, about race and culture and suddenly they disappeared because COVID hit and everyone started cutting staff and cutting back and cutting those roles that were focused on race and equity. Um, of course, right after that, after George Floyd's murder, all these jobs came back and um, every black and brown journalist was getting, getting hit up. 
And, you know, that knee jerk reaction does bother me, but I do see, you know, that now that we're about two years later, I, I, I'm seeing it um, in some of my communities of journalists, uh, the work that they're doing around race and equity and um, the projects, the people that are being brought into the fold and also elevated to a, a, a leadership level. So I think that is also what is most important. Um, having come up in network newsrooms and looking around to see who's at the rim, who's at the senior table, who looks like me and not seeing anyone or not seeing enough of those people um, or enough of them who were speaking up and using their voice. So I have, we, we, there has, progress has been made and you see more stories, you see more startup newsrooms and nonprofit newsrooms who, and, and, and people, and I'm thinking about women who have said, you know what, I'm, I'm, I've been running this, I've been, it's great, but I'm going to start this newsroom. I'm starting this journalism enterprise to, I'm thinking about the 19th news. I'm thinking about URL media um, and others that are community focused and are not taking that um, refrain from the newsroom of, oh, there's no audience for that, or people aren't interested in, in reading this and, and just rejecting that and starting their own newsroom. We are really fortunate to do to to launch the Emancipator really with with the backing of of these institutions, and but to be given the editorial freedom to to build and shape it as we see fit. So I do feel like that's a privilege that we have and a responsibility. You're also launching the Emancipator at a time when there are really incredible organized attacks and pushbacks against the 1619 project. It's being banned from school libraries and public libraries and on so-called critical race theory, the attacks on it, the legislation that's being passed. Um, Deborah, I wonder if you can just talk about what is going on here and why is this happening now? And how do you launch a voice like the Emancipator, an abolitionist voice in the midst of this you know, enormous pushback? Well, we're at an, at an inflection point. And, um, and so what I, what, what may be seen as, as um, tension or, or um, I don't know, the, the lack of common ground on, on a common identity of what it means to be America and American is really an opportunity for us. And I've been looking at, at this as an opportunity actually since 2016. If we're going, if we're leaning one direction, where's the opportunity to say something different, better, joyful, inclusive in another direction? So every night when I'm lying in bed obsessing, <laughs> I'm thinking about the fact that we get confirmation every day that the emancipator needs to exist because we need this context. We need this historical through line. There is nothing new under the sun but we really need to like, you know, step back from the surface kind of news coverage and provide people an accessible, digestible way to understand the deeper issues that, that, um, that we face every day. So this is just an opportunity for me. It's like throwing down the gauntlet. What else you got? <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel, um, Deborah, you know, sometimes just exhausted by the effort to you know, when somebody responds to you about a situation involving racism, 
that it's one bad apple, it's one bad cop, it's one bad, you know, executive. And here yeah. you come from this deeply informed perspective where you're saying, but but how do you take somebody from that place where they just haven't thought it beyond, you know, one individual? It's infuriating because even people who you would think are, who get it, like I think of Chris Wallace in his recent interview with Nicole Hannah-Jones, um, arguing her down about whether or not Black people made the United States the democracy it is today. Well, if we're the last group of people who are fully enfranchised in this system, and then we take to the streets and to the courts to force the paper to be what it says on paper, then I think maybe we might be the people <laughs> who forced the United States to be a democracy. But what he wanted to do is he wanted to focus on a particular group of people in a generation and pick up, pick them off and like and 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 disaggregate and dissemble until you get to like a very narrow group of people who are responsible for what makes this not a great place to live. And he was really fighting for comfort. And so what you can do is what you always do when you're trying to have a dialogue. I don't know that we're trying to change people's minds just like that. What we're trying to do is have a dialogue to give people the context to think about how they're implicated in the American project. And so we can offer information that um, partially validates some of what they think, but offers better information, or we can just like blow them out of the water with straight facts about how it's different, but, or we can offer our own personal stories or allow our contributors to offer to offer their personal um, stories and their own lived experience and just really flood the public conversation with a whole new set of narratives that previously there hadn't been much room made for. And so by taking up space and giving people the opportunity to at least hear a different story or a different side of the story, then possibly we can embark upon this narrative change that we hope to affect. So Amber, let's take the top news story of this week, uh, the imminent um, end of Roe v. Wade, uh, apparently, from the leaked Supreme Court decision. How's the Emancipator going to cover that story and bring to it a perspective that you think is missing from the other approaches that you see on the front page? Well, we had the opportunity to um, speak with Representative Ayanna Presley just today. We had scheduled to talk to her about student debt crisis, and um, we were able to gear that conversation in a very important way to the impact of, of uh, you know, the rolling back of Roe uh, on communities of color. And, you know, Kimberly Atkins-Store had this conversation with Representative Presley about how uh, black women are really marginalized in, in this. And when and the heart of some of this argument, which is coming out, is that uh, those who have the means to travel or to find care will find it. But so often it's the ones who are, are really left out and left behind um, lower income or have other challenges that are not going to have access to care. And this idea that um, abortion is, is healthcare. 
Um, so we were having that conversation today. And that's something that we are, are really following. Also, the, the roots, um, Representative Presley, I'm going to quote her too on this, this conversation about the roots of the anti-abortion movement being rooted in white supremacy and perpetuating these cycles of poverty and economic inequality that then exacerbate the health disparities of a community. So there's a real ripple effect here. It's not just a top line um, impact. There's a ripple effect on, on healthcare, on maternal mortality. Explain that connection between um, the anti-abortion movement and white supremacy. And this this leaked um, draft opinion, Alito alluded to the fact that a higher number of black fetuses are aborted. And so it, it was almost like a dog whistle to supposed genocide, except that he didn't really talk about the, the women who uh, were affected. And Congresswoman Presley um, brought that up today. The fact that um, there is a high um, black maternal uh, mortality rate. Um, actually, the mortality rate for, for women in the United States is not as great as it should be, considering that we're supposed to be a superpower in a first world country. Um, we don't talk about um, access to health care, but he, he carved out the story about how people are concerned about this high number of fetuses who are aborted without really focusing on the humanity and healthcare access that is really part of the larger the larger picture. Coming back to the, the actual creation of The Emancipator, you are co-editors-in-chief, which is a very unusual arrangement. In journalism, there is um, almost always a top dog. What I know that it is intentional that you are uh, co-editors-in-chief. Explain your intention. Uh, either one of you, feel free. When I first um, was thinking about the job and talking to some some mentors who were uh, kind of traditional newsroom people running newsrooms, white male, <laughs> and he said, that goes against everything I believe in and how a newsroom could be run. I'm not saying don't do it, but I'm not sure how that's going to work. And so Deborah and I have have had thought about it and talked about it. And, you know, there's there's we're in this shared mission and drawing from that abolitionist spirit of, of this multi-racial and just diverse movement um, where there's shared equity around one focus, you know, that's part of it. And it is an answer to um, white supremacy, if you will, and patriarchy, um, the idea that there must be one person at the top and that that's the only way that things can get done. I mean, that's just, that's what we're used to. That's what we see. Yeah. And this is, it's time for, you know, a new model of leadership we're, we're interested in that yeah we want to be the antidote to these structures and hierarchies that actually hoard power and I've been in many many newsrooms run by a single person usually a white male uh, who has a really strong personality and there's like um, there's not fear not respect attached to that presence but more fear attached to that presence and a, and a lack of ability to share ideas and feel heard. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that in our presence and the way that we, we share this platform, that people feel drawn to us, that our team feels drawn to us, that the communities of, communities of interest that we interface with feel drawn to us, and they feel free and open, and we feel 
just like the freedom to create and and build something better. No idea is a bad idea. Finally, um, Amber, what do you hope that readers of The Emancipator will come away with that they might not know after their daily reading of the Boston Globe? Well, for one, I think I want them to be introduced to new voices. Um, like we've mentioned, scholars, um, you, many of them have their platforms. Maybe they have their column in the big paper or their best-selling book. There's a lot of scholarship that isn't highlighted and elevated, and we want to take that and it may not be your traditional um, editorial. It may be that we take their work and we turn it into a piece of comic journalism or data journalism. So I think one thing is we wanna meet people where they are and use different formats. We won't always be doing the traditional written piece. Um, we really are three pillars, um, the editorial, a social first experience. We're covering um, the row news on social. That's how we're covering it and video clips um, and community. Um, events and, and convening with people. So I want people to be able to um, know that there are these different ways that they can engage with us and to feel smarter, to feel equipped to maybe have that conversation with their neighbor or their father or anybody that, you know, maybe they've felt a bit uncomfortable about and uninformed about um, when it comes to racial and social justice and equity, but they feel like they can have that conversation and have a have a better understanding. That's the real test of um, the, the feeling smarter part is the real test of impact. When people read what you've written or they watch a video or or they engage with an illustration and they turn around and they talk to somebody about it like it was their idea, <laughs> then you know that you're doing something right. <laughs> Well, on that note, uh, Amber Payne and Deborah Douglas, um, co-editors-in-chief of The Emancipator, I want to thank you both for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you, David. Thank you, David. Thank you.